0: Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah.
1: And I'm Ben.
0: Thanks for joining us on this ridiculous adventure today.
1: (laughs) Did the weight of what we do just sort of hit you or a little bit uh huh yeah well thank you so much for listening to us as we uh sort of
0: march through time
1: <laughs> inexorably towards christmas and uh those of you who are still in the mood for the spooks during the christmas season we salute you christmas is of course a season for ghost stories but
0: that is not what today is for <laughs>
1: I guess it isn't a ghost story. Today we're watching The Flying Serpent from 1946, directed by Sam Newfield.
0: Now my understanding is he's using a pseudonym here. Oh
1: yeah, so this is Sam Newfield directing as Sherman Scott, but it's, it's, it's Sam Newfield. Okay. Yeah, so Sherman Scott was one of three aliases that Sam Newfield used to make it seem like there were more directors working at PRC than there were. Because this is a PRC film. Uh, it is written by John T. Neville, who was the writer of The Devil Bat. <laughs> Excellent talent there. And then it's directed by Sam Newfield and produced by his brother, Sigmund Neufeld. These guys, of course, if you're a longtime listener to Scream Scene, you'll know they were the founders of Producers Releasing Corporation, Hollywood's cheapest Poverty Row studio, these founders of PRC had sold their studio to Pathé in 1943.
0: So it was Pathé Releasing Corporation.
1: Yeah, but uh, the brothers stayed on to continue to work at the studio they founded and then had sold. And this film is actually the final time that we will be seeing their work on the show. Oh. Sigmund Neufeld felt that Pathé's attempts to produce higher quality films at PRC was a big mistake. (laughs)
0: Uh, Okay.
1: He thought it was a major financial misstep. And so in 1947, he and his brother would leave the company that they founded to strike out on their own. Uh, PRC would be sold later in 1946 to Eagle Lion a company created by J. Arthur Rank to distribute his British films in the United States, which would use PRC to produce B-movies for those British films to run with. As for the Neufeld brothers, well, they would continue to make cheap program fillers until the late 1950s, with many of their later films being part of sort of, like, exploitation genres, movies about women in prison and that sort of thing.
0: But no more horror.
1: That's right. So, yeah, this is our last film we're looking at from Sam Newfield, the most prolific American director of the sound era. Starring in The Flying Serpent is our boy George Zuko, Mm. who we last saw in a small role in House of Frankenstein. The Flying Serpent was the only movie that he made in 1946. Um, I mean, he's
0: getting older. It might be good for him to be slowing down. He
1: was 60 years old when he made this film. Yeah, his career was kind of winding down by this point. Now, the Flying Serpent of the title is no ordinary flying snake.
0: Are flying snakes ordinary, Ben? Well, you know, like you're... You see them walking down... Oh, sorry, you're walking down the street. They're flying down the street.
1: That's right. Uh, This Flying Serpent is uh, a god. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. At least... Is supposed to be. I don't know what it'll be like in this movie, but maybe you can enlighten us a little bit about what sort of the mythos is supposed to be around this uh, deity.
0: Sure. Uh, The deity in question here is Quetzalcoatl, a Mesoamerican god whose name literally means feathered serpent. Okay. The iconography of a feathered serpent is very common across... The, like, Mesoamerican cultures with different titles, different names. From Quetzalcoatl, which is the Aztec name, to a couple of different Mayan names. Depending on which Mayan sect you're in, there's uh, the title Kukulcan and Kukumatz, But they are all referring to the same icon of a flying serpent with pretty similar meanings.
1: Right, so sort of similar to your... Uh... Jupiter Zeus dichotomy. Yes. Mm.
0: Quetzalcoatl was uh, represented by certain animals like the birds resplendent Quetzal, crows, macaws, the harpy eagle, um, especially when Quetzalcoatl was likened to the morning star, snakes, of course, and the wind and sky. He is essentially the god of the wind but also kind of the rain but also is kind of a creator figure like capital sure. C creator figure okay he's kind of all over the place honestly and that's because he has all of these different like aspects of him in these different like subcultures i guess sure that he was the god of wind is kind of kept the same and mm-hmm. you can kind of see that with you know having wings yeah um but he was also often considered the god of wisdom The sky, the morning star, priesthood, vegetation. Okay. Um, So not necessarily agriculture, but vegetation. Hmm. He is sometimes tied to military iconography.
1: Okay. Like, some of those I can understand the connection, right? Like, I can get how you get from, like, wind to sky to, like, morning star. Like, those are all things that are up above you. And, like, from there to priesthood, because, like... Socially, the priesthood is at, like, the top of the pyramid or whatever. And then you went to vegetation, and that's where it kind of lost me.
0: Well, here's the thing. So he is also tied to the planet Venus,
1: depending on when Venus would be in the sky. Yeah, Venus is the morning star. That makes sense.
0: And um, Venus symbolized the beginning of the rainy season,
1: Ah, hence why he's also, like, rain and stuff.
0: Yeah, and then because he's the wind, he's also considered as, like, making the path clear for rain gods, for example. Um, And then because of the connection with wind, he's uh, also used to symbolize the boundary between the sky and the earth. Sure. So I think because, you know, looking at that boundary, I think maybe that's why he gets associated with, like, the military and expanding like, your community's boundary.
1: Okay, yeah. And I guess, like, the sky and earth dichotomy makes sense because he's a, you know, snake with wings.
0: Yeah. The way he was represented in culture early on um, in, like, the Olmec civilization in 1200 to 400 BC, it tended to just be, like, a giant snake with wings, Mm -hmm. um, very focused on that snake head. Um, And it should be noted that snakes were considered symbols of renewal because they would shed their skin.
1: Okay, yeah, got it.
0: And then eventually it changed over time, especially with the um, Toltec civilization, uh, which was around 900 to 1150 AD, the representation of Quetzalcoatl as having specifically a macaw beak. Okay. And being a bit more anthropomorphized. So you get... Images of him as like a man, but with like a either a bird head or a bird mask that's just this giant beak. Okay. I think the reason why he's considered kind of a creator type god, like capital C creator, is because the symbols of the sky and vegetation were symbols of life. Yeah. But also with the Toltec civilization, there's some scholarship that is looking at whether. Quetzalcoatl was a real guy
1: oh yeah sure
0: um because the origin myth of the Toltec people the civilization was founded after Quetzalcoatl left had a falling out basically over human sacrifice he didn't want to do human sacrifices Hmm. and the community at the time did Hmm. so he left traveled east and settled in the area that's considered Chichen Itza um, and started the Toltec community.
1: Okay. So I think
0: that's like, if that is like a real guy, he's creating this community and, you know, you can kind of see the ties to a creator myth.
1: Yeah, there's um, sort of a common strain of anthropological study sort of a common theory, I guess, that often suggests that deities in cultures are memories of like uh, warrior kings, hero kings of long ago. Um, I don't know how much stock I always tend to put in those. I think, you know, my friend, our friend Benito Serino is often fond of saying that probably they're all true. Like, if you hear a bunch of different theories about where some tradition or religion or something came from, they're probably all right to some degree or another. It's usually not just one simple answer, but that sort of, to hear that's a theory doesn't surprise me.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of common with uh, Quetzalcoatl as like a whole as well, because the Mayan name Kukulkan Mm -hmm. um, is very associated with Chichen Itza. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, Kukul Khan is known to be the name of an actual priest who was at Chichen Itza. Oh. And he called himself Kukul Khan to tie himself to the god. And so the things that he did get conflated with things that the god did. Sure. Because translation over time, things get mixed up. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, I should note, because we've brought up this blurring of like God and people Mm -hmm. um there's a myth that uh in 1519 when Hernan Cortes landed okay um that uh Mayan and Aztec people associated him as Quetzalcoatl returning
1: yes I think I've heard this one
0: but it is just a myth uh scholars have looked into this and it all comes from Cortes himself starting that rumor
1: yeah, I mean, if if I'm trying to conquer a nation, impersonating a deity is probably a a way to go about it. Yeah. So, I don't know if you have anything on this in your notes, but, like, yeah, like, after the Toltecs, you have the Mayans, and kind of after the Mayans, you have the Aztecs. And the Aztecs, I know, were big on human sacrifice, but they were also big on Quetzalcoatl, who, according to the story you told earlier, was not big on human sacrifice. Yeah. So, what's the deal, Sarah? <laughs> Um, are we or are we not sacrificing these humans? <laughs> That's
0: one of the confusing things with mythical figures like this, especially when they have many different aspects. There are aspects of Quetzalcoatl that are like, no, he's down for human sacrifice. And then other things like this Toltec myth that are like, no, he's really not into it. I will say that his downfall, he gets basically kicked out, kicked off his throne by like his evil opposite. Okay. Tezcatlapoe got Quetzalcoatl drunk, so drunk, that Quetzalcoatl went and slept with his sister. Okay. And then he was, when he awoke, was super ashamed. So, um, there's two versions. One, from his shame, he dresses himself in uh, turquoise armor, goes into a coffin, and is, uh, and gets set on fire, he Mm -hmm. self-immolates. The other myth to this is that he sails eastward on a raft made of snakes.
1: Right, so if he sails eastward on a raft made of snakes, then that's how Cortez can be like, well, I came from the east and I'm your god now.
0: Exactly, yeah, that's kind of the uh, quote-unquote evidence that Cortez used. But um, since he has this downfall, um, this could be why the Aztecs and other cultures into human sacrifice reconcile using Quetzalcoatl as a figure, a creator figure, um, and using that kind of iconography while also continuing to do human sacrifice. Right. Uh, So, yeah, it will be very interesting, especially because, like, Quetzalcoatl is, like, I feel like in cultures where there are multiple gods... They all have multiple aspects, so no one's, like, pure good or pure bad. Mm-hmm. But Quetzalcoatl is definitely on the paragon side of the spectrum. Okay, sure. So it's interesting that he's brought up in this film, The Flying Serpent, to presumably be a bad monster.
1: Yeah, I mean... I have no idea what to expect from this movie. I tried to find out why a movie in 1946 would be evoking Quetzalcoatl. Um, couldn't find anything about it, but it did lead me down a path of asking, like, why is Quetzalcoatl the Aztec deity I've heard of? hmm You know, like, if, if you think about it, like...
0: Outside of D&D.
1: Sure, but I mean, like, well, yeah, there's a lot of Aztec deities that I know now, outside of you know, if you study this stuff or it's your heritage or you're a real nerd or whatever, I feel like mainstream culture, like if there's a Aztec deity you've heard of, it's Quetzalcoatl. And you kind of, if there's an image in your mind of like what a, you know, Mesoamerican deity looks like, it's the snake with the wings. And I wonder why for, you know, mainstream, you know, colonizer white culture in North America, that's the, the case. Because, you know, if you're asking the question of why are they using him as a monster in this movie, like, my my gut guess is he's the only one they knew about. Sure. Like, it was...
0: Well, I think that there's something to do about the fact that these cultures are in modern-day Mexico. Yeah. You have some transfer of cultural understanding that way between America and Mexico. hmm
1: Well, and with it being part of, like, the Cortez myth and, like, you know, people learn about Cortez in high school and stuff.
0: Yeah, and even, like, the the idea of, like, a, a city of gold road to El Dorado. Like, there is interest in, like, Aztec and Mayan cultures.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think,
0: like, we've already seen that there's interest in that kind of, like foreign ideas with the mummy stuff with Egypt. Right. Um, the, what, it was a George Zuko movie too. Um. The Mad Ghoul? Yeah. Where it was like using Aztec stuff to explain it. Yeah. Um, and this is probably why George Zuko is in this movie.
1: Yeah. I think if, if, you know, if I had to come up with a pat answer to my own question, I guess it would be like, you know, with these pantheistic religions, Uh, You know, whether it's Egyptian or Greek or Roman or Aztec or what have you, um, you know, you kind of look around. It's like, well, you know, they got a god of war. They got a god of the sun. They got this. They got that. And the image of a big snake with wings is, like, not one that comes up in these other cultures. Like, the closest thing is, like, dragons, Mm -hmm. which are also usually just big monsters, not gods. So it's a unique enough image that it sticks in your mind, I think.
0: And probably the reason why like an average American, especially like in code era Hollywood, would be like, ah, flying serpent, evil. Uh yeah. is
1: because of the whole like Christian thing. Yeah, snakes are <laughs> in like European culture, snakes are evil. Yeah. yeah. So it, it that all kind of tracks. Yeah. Well, that's really I guess all our context setting for today. Uh, So we can dive into watching this movie. It was uh, (laughs) released on February 20th, 1946.
0: Perfect date movie.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, And it is in the public domain.
0: What a surprise. And
1: if you want to watch along, you can download a copy from the Internet Archive.
0: Hey, Venus. Isn't Venus the planet of love?
1: I guess. So. It all comes together.
0: Yeah. Venus, Quetzalcoatl, released in February. The Flying Serpent, 1946, directed by Sam Newfield. You're going to hear a brief musical break, and when we come back, we will discuss The Flying Serpent.
1: See you on the other side, everybody. one to scream scene we just finished watching the flying serpent from 1946 directed by sherman scott aka sam newfield this was
0: are you doing that because it was a serpent
1: <laughs> what did you think of this sarah
0: oh my god there's nothing about this movie to keep my interest there's nothing charming about it. There's nothing ridiculous enough about it to make you go, like, oh, I'll keep watching because it's silly. It, it was just repetitive and boring. Literally. Literally repetitive. Literally repetitive. We see the same shot of a car driving up, I think, several times. Yeah. And it's supposed to be different people and different cars, and it's the same car. Um, it, ugh. I will say that the design of Quetzalcoatl... Uh, was interesting.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't say good, but... No, uh, not good, interesting. but, like, I
0: think that they had some neat ideas. They, at one point, it's like breathing smoke, because why, I don't know, but the idea of it being sort of a dragon thing is in there. Um, so, like, I, it's kind of neat. And the way that they have it coming flying at people, the wire and flying method is done better than in the devil bat.
1: Right. But... It's the same kind of shtick, though.
0: Yes. And there's a charm to Devil Bat that this does not have at all.
1: So, the thing about this movie is, like, it's not really bad enough to, like, hit your Ed Wood kind of levels where you can watch it for that. But, like, it's also just so dumb that it doesn't... It's hard to watch. Yeah. This is a perfect Mystery Science Theater 3000 kind of movie. Because, like, you could talk through this whole thing and it does not matter. Yeah. So.
0: How about you tell us what it's about? Yeah. And I promise not to talk over you
1: through it. Sure. I have done a little bit of checking up on some of the claims made in this movie, as it were, some fact checking. This movie, for as dumb as it is, does appear to be slightly better researched than I gave it credence for. Okay. So the movie begins with a kind of Star Warsian opening crawl, which tells us that Montezuma's treasure, which is a fake thing, but to give you the background on that, Montezuma was the Aztec emperor who surrendered to Cortez, and the myth is that he had a whole ton of treasure that he stashed away somewhere. Well, it turns out Montezuma's treasure is in these Aztec ruins in New Mexico. They are specifically by the small town of San Juan, New Mexico, and apparently the Aztecs built these ruins here, well... They weren't ruins when they built them, of course. <laughs> then These are people's homes, Ben. <laughs> right. Because the Aztec didn't live in the United States or, you know, what would be the United States. They lived in the Valley of Mexico, way to the south. Um, so apparently they built this stuff here, then traveled way to the south for their civilization. And then when the jig was up, Montezuma sent the treasure to go get hidden away in the old country and be guarded by Quetzalcoatl who in this movie, they pronounce it Quetzacoatl.
0: Kind of a, a Boston thing at the end there?
1: Quetzacoatl. So I looked it up. San Juan is a place in northwest New Mexico, and it is at the very tail end of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, it's now called OK after its pre-Spanish name. And there, are, there is a place in the United States called Aztec Ruins National Monument that's a two-hour drive from what used to be called San Juan. They are not actually Aztec. Mm-hmm. Uh, they are Pueblan ruins from the 12th century that were mistaken for Aztec by 19th century settlers. Montezuma's treasure is also not a thing.
0: Would they have had that correction of the boon's origin by the time that this movie was made?
1: Oh, yeah. Like, the whole deal of them being a mistake was, like, bef- you know, settlers. Like, literally just yokels being like, well, they must be Aztec. Before, like, actual people with experience <laughs> and knowledge <laughs> okay. came around.
0: You know, before actual people came around. Right.
1: Uh, now, I will also say that, in- according to, like, the Aztec's own myth, of, like, the beginnings of their civilization. Their myth was, like, they came from a different land up north called Azdlan. Uh, aztlan I don't know how you would really say it. Like
0: the lion and the lion, the witch, in the wardrobe?
1: It's Azd as in Aztec and then lan. So like Aztec lan, okay. Right. So, like, the idea that maybe their homeland was up in New Mexico, yeah. like, it's not, it's wrong, but it's not, like, totally from nothing Yeah, they're getting this idea.
0: Like, even with Quetzalcoatl's um, origin story, for lack of a better word, of, like, leaving a place and heading east Mm -hmm. to, like, found Chichen Itza, basically, like, yeah.
1: The deal is we're at these Aztec ruins by New Mexico. Uh, I think they call them Azteca. Yeah, it's called Azteca in this movie, Um, the Aztec ruins by San Juan. So our lead character is Professor Andrew Forbes, played by George Zuko, and he makes no sense. So, we learn right away...
0: That's crazy.
1: Yeah, that's basically the only logic for his motivation. We learn that uh, he's discovered Montezuma's treasure, and he's got it hidden in some, like, D&D-ass treasure chests a few paces outside of a secret rock door in the side of a hill nearby the ruins. Uh, he's, it's all filled with gold and jewels. Apparently he's just been sitting on it for five years. No reason is ever given for why he has it stashed away here, why he hasn't, you know, used it to buy things, the thing you would want treasure for. There's no reason why he hasn't gone public for it, why he isn't rich and wealthy. Other than far later in the film, he goes on a literal Daffy Duck rant about how it's mine, all mine. It's mine,
0: you understand? Mine, all mine! Get back in there! Down, down, down! Go, go, go! Mine, mine,
1: mine! (laughs) So apparently that's why. If he doesn't tell anyone about it, no one else can have it. Now, as mentioned in the opening crawl, Quetzalcoatl guards Montezuma's treasure, but Professor Forbes somehow got around that And has Quetzalcoatl locked up in a iron cage. Yeah. Now, you might have a certain image in your mind of what a winged serpent god would look like or how big it might be since it's a god. But Quetzalcoatl is actually the size of a medium-sized turkey. The animal's appearance is sort of like (laughs) a legless lizard. Like, it's got, like, a, a horn on its nose and some spikes down its spine. Like, it's like a, a a jungle lizard, but it has no legs. And then it's got wings that do have feathers, but they're sort of in the shape of, like, butterfly wings.
0: Yeah, kind of like, um, if you imagine Rodan. Mm-hmm. Only instead of legs, it's just a little bit of a tail. Yeah. And these wings are, as Ben described, like turkey wings, like... You could even, like, maybe, maybe if you imagine when you see, like, a pheasant or quail flying, yeah. where it has, like, a big plump body, but then, like, you've got the neck and the tail. mm mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: We never quite figure out how Professor Forbes has managed to uh, uh, subdue Quetzalcoatl, but he has learned that Quetzalcoatl is super prideful and jealous of anyone who possesses any of its feathers. So we see the professor take a feather off the bird. Then we cut to the home of Dr. Lambert, a ornithologist who lives in San Juan. Which is someone who studies birds. And he is being visited by Professor Forbes' stepdaughter, Mary Forbes, because she's concerned that her dad has been working too hard lately and is getting too obsessed with this Aztec stuff. Especially since her mom died. Professor Forbes shows up and he is pissed off at... Dr. Lambert because Dr. Lambert wrote an article in a journal about birds in New Mexico and as like a bit of flavor text for his article was like, oh yeah, you know, they say that somewhere around here is Montezuma's treasure being guarded by a feathered serpent. Like, that's a neat kind of New Mexico bird. Let me tell you about some real birds. And Forbes is pissed off because publishing such a thing could bring treasure seekers all over the world to... Uh, Azteca to the ruins, and they would ruin all the ruins with their dynamiting and their, you know, poking their nose in where it doesn't belong. A.K.A. Professor Forbes has the treasure and doesn't want anyone else to find it. Which, you know, if you'd moved it in like the five years you've been sitting on your ass, but anyways. So, Professor Forbes is so upset that his friend, Dr. Lambert, wrote something in a scientific journal that some folks might read and it might convince them to come here. That he leaves a Quetzalcoatl feather in Dr. Lambert's room, knowing that that will set the bird off to kill Dr. Lambert. Like, he is willing to commit murder over you published something in a science journal that bothered me slightly.
0: So he's like an internet troll.
1: Sure. I guess what I'm saying is, like, I saw this movie described a lot as a remake of Devil Bat. But in Devil Bat, Bela Lugosi had motivation for what he was doing. He was out for revenge. Now, Dr. Lambert and Mary, they find the feather. They're like, oh, this is super pretty. And Dr. Lambert's like, yes, there's only three of these in the world. They're in museums in, you know, Mexico and Guatemala and so forth. They come from what is believed to have been a flying reptile bird that sucked the blood out of its victims. And Mary's like, how do you know all that from a feather? And apparently it's because, well, we found all the feathers in the hands of men who had had all the blood sucked out of them. and at He does add, I'm sorry to bring this up, knowing how your mother died. And it's like, what? Yeah. And <laughs> also, like, okay, how do you make the jump there to, like, it was a lizard bird? And, you know, so you would think the logical reason you would make that jump is you'd go, oh, well, the Mesoamericans had this myth. Maybe this was the inspiration for the myth. But Lambert just now, is like, wait, could this have been the inspiration for the myth? <laughs> Anyways, so Lambert decides to go out to Azteca to go see the superintendent at the ruins to ask him, like, hey, did you did you leave this weird feather at my place, knowing that I'd be into it? And as he's outside, well, he drives to the ruins in his beige car. Uh, the same and- car that
0: we see George Zuko drive to the ruins in. Many a time.
1: In fact, it's the same car everyone drives to the ruins. It just so happens everyone in this movie has the same car, so that when they drive to the ruins, we can use the same establishing shot over and over again. Zuko...
0: Also, presumably, it's two hours away. (laughs) So people are using up a lot of gas.
1: Zuko goes to his Quetzalcoatl cage and lets the bird out through the opening in the ceiling, and the bird goes out and kills Dr. Lambert. Well... The mysterious death of Dr. Lambert, what with there being no footprints because the bird can fly, and what with his jugular vein being opened and all the blood sucked out of him and all of this sort of nonsense, uh, has people really confused, like it's a real humdinger. So a fucking radio station in New York, (laughs) which runs a series of mystery stories written by a mystery novelist named Richard Thorpe, has decided to send Thorpe to San Juan to solve the mystery. Yeah, as if it's like an Agatha Christie movie. And like, if sending a dude who writes pulp mystery shit for a radio station to a place to get involved in a real investigation sounds like a bad idea, apparently the owner of the radio station whose idea this was also thinks it's a bad idea and is constantly complaining about it. As Richard Thorpe goes to San Juan and starts doing his broadcasts from the scene, the movie now gains, like, a set of um, hecklers in fiction because we keep cutting back to the radio station and seeing the employees listen to the broadcasts and hear the fucking J. Jonah Jameson-ass radio station owner be like, this is shitty and terrible, do something else, whatever. And it's like, I don't need... Anyways. Thorpe goes to San Juan. And conducts an investigation with the begrudging assistance of the local sheriff. And this investigation enables the movie to spend ten minutes recapping what happened in the first ten minutes of the movie. Important for a Poverty row picture. Oh, yeah. And there's a reason why we keep seeing people drive up to that ruin every time.
0: Now, the sheriff is unhappy about it, but not for long.
1: Yeah, so... Thorpe's kind of picking up, like, okay, this murder has something to do with the ruins, there are these feathers, there's this bird that might be a god, or it might just be a prehistoric monster left over from a previous age that the Aztec just mistook for a god, Uh, and... You know, like a dinosaur. Right. And, you know, it is kind of funny that, like, this movie's explanation for Quetzalcoatl is that it was some kind of reptile with feathers from the dinosaur times. Yeah. Because it's a movie from the 40s. They didn't know dinosaurs had feathers yet.
0: I will also just like to add that there is a dinosaur named after Quetzalcoatl. Okay. Um, it's called Quetzalcoatlus. Okay. Uh, and it's, like, a giant pterodactyl type of thing. Dope. Yeah, but, like, giant as in, like, you know... Not
1: the size of a turkey. Yeah. Like, the size of, like, what? Like, a Buick? Bigger. Okay.
0: In the film, it's turkey size, so maybe, like, a velociraptor?
1: Right. So, I will give this movie another bit of credit at this point, which is, as Thorpe is building his case, he calls in, you know, some experts on Aztec stuff, and it is mentioned that Quetzalcoatl, like, was not, like, a violent blood-sacrifice god, like, that was a different Aztec god. Quetzalcoatl was not into sacrifice, but he could kill to protect what he valued, and, uh, you know, since he's protecting Montezuma's treasure slash his feathers, I guess that's the explanation we get. Thorpe keeps going out to, like, the patch of land by the ruins with different sets of people. Uh, Forbes brings him out there one time, and of course, because Thorpe's trying to, like, solve the mystery, Forbes tries to get Thorpe killed with a feather, But, you know.
0: (laughs) How fast can you switch between their names? (laughs) They're very similar, aren't they?
1: Yeah. But because Thorpe gives that feather to the sheriff, while he goes and gets uh, the superintendent who can confirm that this is indeed a Quetzalcoatl feather, uh, Quetzalcoatl kills the sheriff. And this is kind of what keeps happening is, you know, Forbes really wants Thorpe dead, but uh, he's willing to also kill anyone who's, like, helping Uh, Thorpe. Now, no points to you if you've guessed that Thorpe and Mary are uh, starting to get close together, and Forbes doesn't like that one bit at all either. He tells Mary, like, stay away from the radio station when Thorpe makes his broadcast, because of course he has given Thorpe another feather... Uh, since the first one got the sheriff killed. And this time, Thorpe gives that feather to, like, a renowned ornithologist, presumably the second most renowned ornithologist in the area, after Lambert was killed, to examine. And that ends up in that ornithologist getting killed by the uh, Quetzalcoatl. So, just, you know, trail of death after death. Finally, Thorpe's figuring out, like, ah, whoever has a feather dies. And he's pretty sure that it's, like, a person who's, like, using the monster to kill people. So he gets, like, a guy in from out of town, dresses him up like he's a treasure hunter so that Forbes will be pissed off that there's a treasure hunter, you know, interfering in his business. So Forbes gives him a feather, then, like, jets off to go release the bird. Thorpe's hiding nearby. He's like, aha, now we know that it's Forbes. Uh, They manage to not get killed by the bird because they've got, like, a gate and a cave to hide in.
0: (laughs) And this is how Thorpe tracks down where Forbes' cave is.
1: Yeah, he basically observes, like, where the bird came from, where the bird goes to. So Thorpe finds the cave, finds Quetzalcoatl, you know, locked up in an iron cage, finds Montezuma's treasure, and he's doing his radio broadcast from inside, you know, Geraldo Rivera-style, finding Al Capone's treasure, only this time there is really a treasure and also a real monster. Uh, (laughs) And he's given this radio broadcast. Meanwhile, Mary goes to her stepdad, and she's like, Hey, you know, I'm really sorry that everyone in the town thinks you're the murderer. And Forbes is like, wait, what? And she's like, well, you know, because Mom died the exact same way that all these people are dying, and you're always out at the ruins, and that's where the murders are happening— And, you know, you were with Lambert the day he died, so, you know, everybody's saying this, and I I really am upset that people are saying this, and I'm sorry this has to be happening to you. And Forbes is like, oh, well, me being at the ruins all the time has a perfectly logical explanation. I've been studying, you know, Aztec writing, and I think I've finally cracked the code. And Mary's like, oh, okay, cool, I'm glad there's a reasonable explanation, I totally believe you, everything is fine." And Forbes is like, right, so now I'll have to kill her because she's gotten too close to the truth. And it's like, my dude, she was, she said she believed you. Yeah. So Forbes is like, well, I'll take you out to the ruins and I'll show you my discovery. And Mary's like, well, I mean, I don't really care. I, I, it's not really as something long as you're I... As fine. Yeah. Like, no, good. I insist. Oh, oh. oh, okay. I mean, let me get my coat. Yeah. So he drives Mary out to the ruins and is like, see, Mary, look. I discovered Montezuma's treasure. It's mine, all mine. And look, there's Quetzalcoatl. And she's like, wait, so then you did kill all those people. And you killed mom. And he's like, no, I gave her one of the feathers as a gift because I thought it was pretty. And then the bird killed her. But that's how I figured out that it'll kill people for its feathers. So then he's (laughs) got a feather off the bird because he's going to put it on Mary for the bird to kill Mary. But Thorpe rushes in and saves her. So now he's just sort of got a feather in his hand and the bird's already been released. So he runs away from the bird, still carrying the feather. Yeah. The thing that he, above all people, knows that if you have, the bird will kill you.
0: Yeah, so just drop the feather, guy.
1: Yeah, George Zuko just jogs through Bronson Canyon carrying a peacock feather until this turkey lizard bird kills him. The end.
0: Yeah. Well...
1: Thorpe and Mary are going to get married, and then the radio show will be Mr. and Mrs. Thorpe Solve Mysteries, Um, and the guy who owns the radio station is annoyed because he's not going to get a share of the treasure, which why would he? Anyways. Yeah. It's a very dumb movie.
0: Yeah. Like, a general yawn for the whole movie. I really don't care about what's happening on screen. Nothing is going on that's, like, ridiculous enough for me to be interested, like what happened with Devil Bat. Um, there's no, like, charm going on here. Uh, I, I also just feel like just poorly written, poorly yes. acted. The production's okay, but, like, it, ugh.
1: it has all of the hallmarks of being, like, a cheap movie because, like, everyone drives to the same little spot, you know, probably two hours' drive out of L.A., Uh, Well,
0: at least that's accurate. (laughs) Sure.
1: Everyone drives to the same spot over and over. We see them drive to it every time they go there. And the whole movie is basically just, we're in San Juan, then we take an expendable character out to the ruins and get them killed, go back to San Juan, pick up another expendable character, rinse repeat until it's time to threaten the girl. Yeah. The ruins are, you know, basically a cave with a door and a cage and some treasure chests and everything's within like 6 paces of everything else. And
0: yeah, everything is just so repeated between the shots, between repeating information, you just start to tune out.
1: When a movie uses stock footage from itself, yeah. is when you really know you're in trouble and like no one's nothing that happens makes sense.
0: Yeah, like, no one acts like a real person. Like
1: Other than he's crazy, there's no rationale for what Forbes is doing. He's killing people, like, he kills Lambert because Lambert bugged him, basically. Yeah. And then he kills everyone else to prevent them from finding out he killed Lambert or to prevent them from finding the treasure. And it's like, dude, you've been sitting on this treasure for five years. Like, just have the treasure. Just announce, hey, I found the treasure. Yeah. And all your problems are over.
0: Yeah. Like, the movie doesn't say it but it's almost like he goes crazy over guilt over his wife being killed. Right, but those dots are never connected. Yeah. Um, he they they don't it's not even like oh that got cut for time or something cuz like this movie is barely 60 minutes long. It's a mess of a script.
1: Yeah, because you learn everything in an order that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And the way information's presented doesn't make sense. Like we're told, "Hey, I'm Professor Forbes." I work at the Aztec ruins deciphering Aztec hieroglyphics where the Aztec emperor Montezuma put his treasure and here's the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl and then later in the movie it's established that like like during an inquest where they're giving out a lot of exposition you know it's established like well you know the Aztecs lived way south of here but hasn't there always been a tradition that there were some Aztec ruins around here somewhere, and Professor Forbes is like, yes, I've been working to prove that for some time. And it's like, wait, so are they the Aztec ruins or not? Yeah. And like, the thing about the Quetzalcoatl thing where it's like, oh yeah, we already knew this monster existed, but no one's ever seen it, there's no evidence that it ever existed, and... I'm only just realizing now that maybe the monster was the inspiration for the deity, even though the deity would, would be the only reason you would think that the monster existed in the first place. And everyone talks about the monster like, oh, it's this thing we're going to prove exists. And it's, it's like nothing yeah. fits together here. The movie feels like it was written out of order. And then when they put all the scenes together, like no one checked to make it seem as if like, you were going from A to B to C to D properly. Yeah. You're just all over the alphabet. No one, like why would a radio station send this guy out here? That doesn't make any sense. And then he's finding the monster and he's on the radio talking about like, oh yeah, I found this monster and all this kind of stuff. And the radio station owner is like, oh, he's just giving out a hoax. We're going to be the laughing stock of the radio world. And it's like, Wait a minute. Well,
0: why did you send him then? Yes. Like, why didn't you send, like, an actual reporter?
1: Yeah, or or the other thing. Yeah, exactly. You sent a writer out. But also, the only reason why this particular murder was interesting to anyone was like, ooh, well, it might be this monster that people say is around here. So, like, when he so goes and finds... So you're supposed to
0: be leaning into that.
1: Right. Like, are you are you a sensationalistic radio station that's doing, like, a cheap show that's exploiting a guy's murder for ratings? Or are you doing investigative journalism? You aren't doing both.
0: Yeah, like I said in um, the plot summary, like, the prop (laughs) for Quetzalcoatl is kind of neat. Like, the way that um, it has kind of a rattlesnake sound with it, because rattlesnakes kept coming up in my research. Um, The way that it has kind of like an open mouth, uh, when you do see its mouth, um the way it 's like putting out smoke, even though that doesn 't make sense with anything, like they clearly like tried with
1: it <laughs> but on the other hand, like even though they tried they 're also pretty aware, I think that it didn 't turn out looking good, yeah, because they do the best they can to like keep it in shadow or have it pass by the camera so fast that you don't notice the details, or just keep it very far in the distance. Like, they do the best they can for you to not get a good look at this thing. Yeah. Because it was, like, it's, like, two different animals taxidermied together and, like, thrown at people from off camera. Like, it's... Yeah.
0: It's, um, probably a better made prop than the devil bat, but honestly... The charm of the devil bat is how terrible it is.
1: Sure. And well, how
0: terrible that prop is. And
1: the thing about the... Like, there would be more charm to this movie if I could... Like, if I could see clearly what the darn thing looked like and then be able to laugh at how goofy it looked like, I would be charmed. Yeah. But because the movie was like, oh, this looks goofy, let's hide how goofy it looks, which is a good, responsible filmmaking decision. It means that, like... It's just kind of like, yeah, this looks like nothing. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have anything else to say about this one.
0: I don't. Um, So let's move on to ranking.
1: I don't think this movie's horror.
0: Okay. I have a range. Okay. Because I think, like, I think it's definitely worth the conversation. Okay. If it's horror or not. But I chose a range because it's definitely a very bad horror. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not... Like when we get into these really bad horror movies, it's, sometimes it's like, Well, is this horror? Because like, it's it didn't really spook me. Like, why would this be considered horror? You or
1: have it's to just judge so bad. Them, you have to judge them by intention, right? Because yeah. like a horror movie that fails to scare you is still a horror movie.
0: Yeah. So
1: A um, comedy movie that doesn't make you laugh doesn't suddenly become a drama. <laughs>
0: Um, okay, so how about you give your points as to why it is not horror, and then I can give some points as to why it's horror just bad.
1: Okay, so I think this movie is definitely a monster movie, for sure, but I don't think it's a horror movie because, like, it never feels like the movie's trying to frighten us with the monster. There's no mystery, there's no tension, there's no suspense. We know exactly what's happening every step of the way all the time. We know from the very beginning everything that's going on. Um, There's no real, like, violence to the monster. It it just kind of hits you in the neck and then flies away. And the structure, to me, with this mystery writer going in for this radio station and, like, solving the murder and falling in love with the girl and then rescuing the girl from the bad guy at the end, like, Mary's not even really under threat long enough for, like, it to be something where she's, like, you know, a scream queen. Like, Mm -hmm. she's... She's just kind of the girl at the end, and she gets threatened for, like, 30 seconds or less before the bird turns on uh, Forbes for no reason. Well, he has a reason. It's just a dumb reason. He
0: has a reason to turn on Forbes. No, yeah,
1: it's just saying that Forbes can drop the damn feather. (laughs) Um, It's like when you see in a cartoon someone running down a hill with, like, a big snowball getting bigger and bigger behind them, and it's like, just step to the left and let it roll by you. Mm -hmm. Anyways, so... To me, this movie has, you know, it's definitely a monster movie, but it feels more like it's in kind of an adventure film kind of genre because we've got these ruins and this hidden treasure that we're trying to find and this kind of thing. Like, I think it's, it's closer in feel to like a movie serial, like a pulp serial, an Indiana Jones kind of thing, or like a King Kong kind of thing with like the hidden civilization stuff. It just doesn't feel like it's trying to be scary. Like, the movie doesn't have a single scene set at night, e- even. Um,
0: but that would cost money, Ben.
1: Sure. Um, so it just, yeah, to me it didn't feel like the movie was trying to scare anyone or even shock anyone. It just felt more like, you know, we've got the bad guy, we've got the good guy, and we've got the bad guy's monster. That's kind of it.
0: Okay. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, this is a monster movie. Um What is kind of, uh, I mean, I I was pretty disappointed in the premise of this movie movie before we even started watching it, of the idea of an Aztec god being used as a pawn to kill someone, like, by someone else. Like, it's not like it has its own agency. So, um, it's not a good monster movie. Yeah. It's, it's
1: a huge letdown when you're told like the monster in a movie is going to be Quetzalcoatl, the, uh, Aztec God of the wind and the sky. And it turns out it's just like a flying lizard Turkey. Like it's, it's a really pathetic monster.
0: Yeah. I also agree with the, obviously the pulp feel, but also the adventure feel. Zuko always seems to be put into the movies that are like a mix of that. It starts with the mummy's hand. Right. Um, and kind of continues now. Maybe that's just because the like the the setting of ruins and monsters guarding treasure is a much more a an, an adventure. adventure pulp trope yeah. than a horror trope. Yeah. Um the mummy notwithstanding. But I think like Part of the reason why I think that this is a horror movie, just a really bad one, is they are still trying to throw in some horror tropes. Okay. Of, uh, the, um, like, (laughs) we get, after the inciting murder... We get a few newspapers twirling at us, and a few of them describe it as a vampire attack.
1: Yeah, they do, because of the drain-to-blood thing, they do bring up vampires, like, once or twice in the movie.
0: Yeah, and um, the fact that they don't know what the monster is. I think the part of the reason why it's a bad horror movie, and a bad movie in general, really, is that we see how it's being released, and, yeah. like,
1: All of that? The movies from the villain's point of view. Yeah. Like, the first thing we see in the movie is the villain driving to his hideout, going up to his pet monster, and then expositing to the monster who he is and what his motivations are. Yeah. The thing, I think one of the things that didn't feel like a horror trope, but more of an adventure trope, was the fact that Forbes, yes, he's this archaeologist, but he's not a mad scientist. He didn't make Quetzalcoatl in a lab. He found him in a dungeon.
0: Yeah. I think um, the other thing to keep in mind is the other scientists that we meet, the bird scientists yeah. or ornithologists—they mm-hmm. um, when they remark upon the feather, they go, oh, wow, this is really rare. And someone like Mary will be like, oh, so it must be worth a lot of money. And they'll say, oh, but no, it's the scientific discovery. I'm not really interested in the money. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you compare that with Forbes, who does try to say that, like, I'm not interested in the money, he clearly is. He's clearly like...
1: He's sitting on a treasure.
0: Yeah, he's almost like a dragon himself. This right. is my horde. Yeah. Um, If you want to think about how this movie portrays scientists and obviously Forbes as a deranged version of that... Um, kind of stepping away from science as well, focusing on money is mine, not just science for science's sake. Like, I think that's another point in your favor. Yeah. Be- being like adventure. Exactly. Or at least not horror.
1: Yeah, because science isn't depicted as the bad guy here. Like, no, the the regular ass scientists are just eggheads. And like, Forbes <laughs> is being... Is that a joke because they study birds? Maybe. <laughs> and, you know, Forbes isn't evil because of science, He's evil because he has a lot of money. Well, that doesn't make him specifically a horror movie villain in any way, right?
0: Yeah. Okay, so, like, the range that I had been looking in... Okay. Um, ...was was pretty low, and honestly, what was helping me figure out where I wanted to rank, it was based on the quality of the storytelling mm-hmm. um, and the ingenuity behind how they came up with some of these ideas. Sure. So my range had been 102, The Mummy's Hand, which was quite an adventure movie. mm mm-hmm. And then um, that's my ceiling, because I figured George Zuko's performance is better in that mm-hmm. than it is in this one. And then I went all the way down to another George Zuko flick, number 111, The Monster Maker, where he's a mad scientist creating werewolf soldiers to fight Nazis. Right and i think like even in the case of the mummy's hand where we described it as like 1 foot in horror 1 foot in adventure if we want to compare the way that that movie handled those tropes and balancing that with the flying serpent i it definitely helps make it a bit more clear that the flying serpent i don't think its intent was anything besides to suspend an hour yeah i don't think i wouldn't even I don't know if I would even describe it as an adventure movie because it doesn't really know what to do with its own tropes.
1: I think the only thing you can call it for sure is a monster movie.
0: Yes. And a waste of time.
1: (laughs) Um, (laughs) But yeah, like if you think of Mummy's Hand and the way Karis is portrayed in that movie, like... Listen, Karis isn't the most effective movie monster. He's slow and shambling, and in that movie at least, you have to put fucking Tana Leaf juice in the room of the person you want killed, so, like, at that point, just kill them yourself. But, like, he is portrayed as something terrifying, you know? He comes in the night, and he grabs you out of your bed, and he takes you back to the tomb where you will be with him for all eternity. Like, there's still terror being employed here, Yeah. Whereas this movie's never from the point of view of any victim. The victims are just red shirts who are being brought out to get killed by Zuko because if he kills Thorpe, the movie will be over. And if I had to rank this, if I had to rank this, I'd be putting it down in, like, the bottom four. Like, in that House of Mystery, Torture Ship, Condemned to Live kind of area. I mean, it's, it's not as bad as, like, Son of Ngagi, but, like... As I said a little earlier, any movie where it's using stock footage of itself is hitting like a some real bottom of the barrel nonsense.
0: Well, even looking in this area, honestly, House of Mystery, Torture Ship, even Condemned to Live, they all strike me as like you can feel that they were trying to make a horror movie and makes the Flying Serpent feel more muddled in what genre it is. So yeah. I think I agree with you about it not being a horror movie.
1: All right. Yeah. Cool. So heading on to the not applicable part of the list is The Flying Serpent from 1946, directed by Sherman Scott, a.k.a. Sam Newfield.
0: If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes we might have mentioned today, as well as our appeals box. If you really feel like The Flying Serpent is actually horror, you can send us a note through our Ask box on Tumblr. You can reach us directly at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com and tell us your thoughts. Tell us why this is the epitome of the, like, George Zuko horror experience. Sure. What are we missing? Please tell us. You can also reach us on Twitter at underscore screamscene.
1: Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed and listen to it on any podcasting app of your choice. And you can do the show a real favor by leaving us a rating or review on the service that you happen to use. Especially on Apple Podcasts, ratings and reviews really help the show out a lot. Another way you can help out the show is just by spreading the word of it uh, through word of mouth. Uh, whether that's social media or in real life. Uh, just letting people you know, know that it's a good show. I'm um, <laughs>
0: master Ben over here.
1: A more um, financial way that you can support the show is by heading over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Uh, There you can sign up to become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. And at the $5 and $10 levels, you get access to bonus content that we put up on the Patreon. And if we hit our first Patreon goal of $150 a month, we will start doing bonus episodes about horror-adjacent movies. So maybe we would look at something that's sort of in, like, the adventure genre um, that's, you know, related to horror but not really horror. Something like... The 1999 The Mummy. Right. Exactly. Uh, Head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and you can be a big help to us. What are we watching next week, Ben? Well, next week, Sarah, we are back at Universal for a sequel to a movie we haven't seen. Okay, it's The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, starring Gail Sondegard, mm. and it is a horror movie, apparently, that is a sequel to Sherlock Holmes and the Spider-Woman, one of Universal's Basil Rathbone Sherlock Holmes movies. But the sequel doesn't have Sherlock Holmes, just the Spider-Woman. Great. It's a spin-off, I guess, is what that is. Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh well, as an arachnophobe, I am dreading this movie. <laughs>
1: Great. <laughs> Alright, join us next week, Creatures of the Night, for The Spider-Woman Strikes Back, which is maybe the most 1940s B-movie title that I could possibly think of. (laughs) Bye! Bye!